twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Lil Sapiens Podcast. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital. I'm so excited to be back here today, and I hope that you will find this topic just as important as I find this topic, and hopefully it doesn't give you a headache. So uh, on that note, we'll be talking about headaches in children today. And just like our first episode on UTIs, we're going to be going through a pediatrics and review article. Uh, This one was published in April of 2020, and similar to UTIs, it's a topic that presents itself very frequently either to the pediatrician's office or in somewhat of an emergent setting uh, or a chronic progressive setting to the emergency department. And so I really feel like this is a topic that I wanted to discuss early on in the podcast because I felt like it's important and it's something that we all really need to know well. So as a brief introduction, I want to ask three questions. Number one, why is studying headaches so important? Number two, what is the most important first step when evaluating a headache? And number three, what is a primary versus secondary headache? So headaches are a very common complaint in children and adolescents and many times leads to a lot of anxiety for both the practitioner but also the parent and the child too. And so when that child comes in with a headache, the most important first step that you can take is getting a thorough headache history and doing a focused neurological exam. Those things will be critical and in most situations will really help the provider distinguish between a primary and secondary headache disorder. So let's get this out of the way early because we're really gonna be talking about primary and secondary headaches, mostly primary, but what is the difference between a primary and a secondary headache? So according to the most up-to-date international classification of headache disorders, the ICHD, and we're now in the third edition, it divides headaches into primary and secondary headaches. Primary headaches are idiopathic or genetic disorders with no known secondary cause. And that's in contrast to secondary headaches, which are headaches that are caused by external factors like a tumor or trauma or increased intracranial pressure or infection, or it might even be the effects of substances or medications. So in short, the basic difference between primary and secondary headache disorders is that primary headache disorders don't really have a cause or at least the cause is not known to us and secondary headache disorders there is a cause and we just need to investigate and figure out what that cause is all right so let's get to the meat of headaches let's talk about a headache history and physical exam and i want to focus on what the top 11 questions are of a headache history establishing how long a headache is occurring establishing the temporal pattern of the headache establishing the location and the quality of the pain thinking about red flags and what further diagnostic testing or imaging you might need for red flags and then also discussing blood pressure neuro exam and fundoscopy as it relates to the headache history and physical exam All right, so that child comes in, he has a headache or she has a headache, and the first thing you want to do is get a good history. So what are you going to ask them? And this isn't rocket science. This is pretty much going through like your OPQRST. So firstly, onset. When did you first start having headaches? 
then you want to focus on the temporal pattern of the headache. So was this a sudden onset of a first time headache? Is this episodic headaches uh, where it's normal in between episodes? Was this uh, a frequent non-progressive headache that's part of other headaches? Or was this gradually worsening headaches or a mixture of daily headaches with episodic worsening? Then I want to know where exactly their head hurts when they have their headaches. I want to know what do the headaches feel like? Is it throbbing? Is it pounding? Is it stabbing? Is it squeezing? Anything else that they can use to describe the pain that they're feeling. And I want to know what they're doing when they get a headache, how long the headache typically lasts, and then what other symptoms do they have with their headaches? Do they have nausea? Do they have vomiting, photophobia, phonophobia, dizziness, numbness, weakness, double vision, anything different than those things that I've mentioned? I also want to know if they get any warning signs or if they could tell when the headache is about to come on. I want to know if their headache is ever worse when they first wake up in the morning or is it present as the first thing on awakening or does this headache wake them up from sleep in the middle of the night i also want to know if they've ever had a seizure and i want to know what kinds of activities foods or medications make their headache worse and getting this history can take a lot of time but i promise you and this pediatrics and review article promises you as well that getting this history will make all the difference because it could be the difference between going down a road of getting extraneous, unnecessary, futile testing and putting a child through worry and putting the family through worry when you may not need to if you can just make the diagnosis based on history and physical exam alone. So let's get a little bit more nitty gritty with these questions and the history uh, that we take when a patient presents with a headache. So establishing how long the headaches have been occurring is crucial. So let's take for example, a child that's coming in with a headache that's been progressively worsening over the course of several weeks and is starting to show signs of neurological abnormalities. This is not a kid that I want to hang my hat on the diagnosis of a migraine on. This is a child that I'm worried about pseudotumor cerebri syndrome or even perhaps a brain tumor, which two things that can be potentially fatal or at least in the moment are very scary and need to be diagnosed early. Compare that to a child who's coming in with two years of intermittent headaches and is otherwise asymptomatic between these episodes of headaches. In this child, I'm really not concerned about increased intracranial pressure. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. What if this is a child who's coming in with an acute onset of a headache? and otherwise has no headache history. Well, in that case, this might be due to a febrile illness, but let's say we have a child who's coming in with a fulminant, severe onset headache. In that case, it may suggest something that's more ominous, like a subarachnoid or intraparenchymal hemorrhage, two diagnoses that obviously need to be taken care of very quickly. And if this kid is coming in with worsening headaches that's progressively getting worse, this is a child that warrants brain imaging. So what I'm trying to get at is not every child that walks in through the door with a headache needs to get their head scanned. However, if the headache is worsening and it's progressing, this is a child that I'm concerned that there is something going on upstairs that is causing this worsening and I need to rule that out immediately. So let's compare this acuity 
type of headache to another child who's coming in with recurring episodes of headaches that are lasting one to four hours and maybe it's associated with nausea and photophobia or phonophobia and periods of overall feeling fine when they're not having their headaches. This is a child who I'm more concerned for a migraine and in this scenario they wouldn't require imaging of their brain. Similarly, I might get a child who's coming in with daily headaches or almost daily headaches. And these are headaches that are persistent and going on over the course of three months and maybe they're missing school frequently. And uh, in this scenario, it's more suggestive of chronic daily headaches, like a chronic tension type or chronic migraine headache, or it could be a mixture of both. But the point is, this is not a case that would necessarily require neuroimaging. Although you might find that some places do it, you might even order it, but it may not be necessary. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about location and quality of pain. So in migraine pain in adults, they typically experience unilateral, temporal, uh, throbbing type of headache. In children and young adolescents, it's usually bilateral, frontal, or temporal. So key differentiation between adult migraines and pediatric migraines. In adults, it's usually unilateral and almost always temporal. In, ch in children or children and young adolescents, a migraine may present as bilateral and it could be frontal, not necessarily temporal. One thing to keep high on your radar is occipital pain because it warrants careful consideration for neuroimaging. Now the pain, occipital pain, it can occur with migraines with brainstem aura. This was actually formerly called basilar type migraines, but occipital pain can also be seen with posterior fossa neoplasms or chiari malformations, which both of those things would require neuroimaging. So you kind of need to keep that on the radar and think about, you know, what is this pain in relation to and should I get imaging uh, just to be on the safe side. And this kind of leads into our red flag features. So we already kind of spoken about some red flags, but I wanna highlight specific red flag features that can present with headaches that are associated with a higher rate of brain abnormalities and really should raise concern for either tumors or abscesses, increased intracranial pressure, vascular malformations, or intracranial bleeds. And when a red flag feature presents itself, that is the time to get further diagnostic testing. And specifically, I'm talking about neuroimaging. So what are these red flags? Well, these red flags include a child that's younger than three years of age, a child who's presenting with a recent onset headache that's less than six months and is steadily worsening in its pattern, such as frequency or intensity. I'm also concerned with a red flag pattern of early morning awakening with headache or vomiting. I'm concerned with double vision, worsening of a headache while straining, explosive onset, presence of seizures, associated mood, mental status, or school performance changes, and neurocutaneous stigmata like caffeolate macules or hypopigmented macules. Again, if any of these red flag features are present, I'm doing neuroimaging. 
And there are all different types of neuroimages that I can get. I can get a CT scan, I can get an MRI, I can get an MRA, I can get an MRV. Which one I choose to get will depend on what I think is causing uh, their headache and specifically these red flag features. But we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. Okay, let's focus on the physical exam and then we'll dive into more of the primary headache disorders and how to make their diagnosis. So for the physical exam in a patient who's coming in with a headache, you really have three ingredients that you absolutely need to put into your physical exam. One is obtaining a blood pressure and knowing how to properly read it, doing a detailed neurological exam, and doing a fundoscopic exam as well. So very high blood pressures are concerning because there might be a systemic issue that's leading to these headaches. And doing a detailed neurological exam might uncover some sort of focal neurological deficit that you can then trace back to a specific region of the brain, which even before you get any imaging might lead you to believe there's something else going on inside the brain that's causing this headache. And then a fundoscopic exam can also help you determine if there's any increased intracranial pressure. But it can be difficult to do it if the eye is non-dilated, if you don't dilate the pupils. Um, so in that case, you might need to refer them for a dilated fundoscopy, obviously if it's appropriate to delay any sort of management that might be needed for this patient with a headache. Nonetheless, let's say you are able to do your fundoscopic exam and you see edema around the optic nerve. That is extremely important because that gives you a hint that there's some sort of secondary etiology going on. Other things to look out for is the pupillary response to light. You also want to look at their extraocular motility, whether they can follow your finger and move in all directions. You also want to keep in mind if there's any diplopia. Uh, because that could be a feature that's seen with many secondary causes of headache. Additionally, you want to focus on facial strength and also symmetry because motor strength and symmetry can also uh, lead you to believe that there might be a hemiparesis or some other type of motor abnormality that suggests a focal pathology. Check their balance, check their coordination. That helps you determine if there's anything going on in the posterior fossa potentially. You also wanna check their reflexes. Is it symmetrical? Check their gait. Do a complete assessment because you're looking for focal features that may suggest a secondary cause for headache, that may warrant neuroimaging, that may warrant not just having the patient go home and follow up with a neurologist or potentially just go home with medication. I want to move on now to talking about the different types of primary headaches. So just as a quick summary, primary headaches are either idiopathic or genetic disorders with no known secondary cause. And that's in contrast to secondary headaches, which are headaches that are caused by external factors like tumors and trauma, increased intracranial pressure, infection, or the effects of substances or medications. So in regards to primary headaches, we'll talk about migraines, and we'll divide migraines into migraines with aura and migraines without aura. We'll talk about tension-type headaches, chronic daily headaches, medication overuse headaches, as well as childhood periodic syndromes. Migraines. Migraines are the most common primary type of headache 
that are seen in children, and it has an overall prevalence of 9.1%, a range that's reported of 1.2% in young children to 23% in adolescents. And it's also the one of the most common reasons for referral to a pediatric neurologist. When we talk about migraines, we really um, try to divide it into migraines with aura and migraines without aura. And we'll talk about what this means. Approximately 20% of migraines can be associated with a preceding aura, which is typically visual, but may include numbness, weakness, dysarthria, coordination difficulties, and confusion. Now, beyond headaches just being a pest and really annoying because they hurt, frequent migraines can have a significant impact on a child or young adult. So children with migraine, uh, and specifically those who have a subset, which is considered chronic daily headaches, they have lower quality of life scores on the pediatric quality of life inventory. And it's similar, their quality of life is similar to children with arthritis and cancer. So when we think of headaches, and when we think of migraine specifically, we need to really keep in mind that the impact that it's having on children is really significant on their quality of life. Now, the way that I think about these different types of primary headache disorders and what diagnostic criteria they have is that I look at which are the most debilitating in terms of clinical symptoms. And those headaches that are the most debilitating when it comes to physical symptoms or clinical symptoms, um, it seems according to the diagnostic criteria that they would require less number of attacks. So when we focus in on the criteria for migraines with aura versus migraines without aura versus tension type headaches, chronic daily headaches, or the um, periodic childhood uh, syndromes, um, I want you to keep that in mind. For migraines without aura, the diagnostic criteria are at least five attacks fulfilling the following criteria. So you have headache attacks that last anywhere between two and 72 hours in children that are younger than 18 years old. There are headaches that have at least two of the following characteristics. So they have to have two of these, unilateral or bilateral location in children younger than 18 years and often frontal. It can have a pulsating quality. It can have moderate or severe pain intensity and aggravation by or causing avoidance of routine physical activities such as walking or climbing stairs. Migraines without aura also must have uh, during headaches at least one of the following, nausea and or vomiting and photophobia and phonophobia. So again, migraine without aura, it's five attacks, last two to 72 hours for each attack in children younger than 18 years old, has two uh, characteristics describing the location of the pain, the quality of the pain, the intensity of the pain, or its effect on physical activity. And it has to have either nausea and or vomiting or photophobia and phonophobia. As we move into migraines with aura, which will have more clinical symptoms and physical effects, um, what we are going to see is that there are less attacks that are needed to fulfill the criteria. So for migraine with aura, you need to have at least two attacks as opposed to the five attacks that you need in migraine without aura. So when you have these attacks, you need to have one or more of the following six 
fully reversible aura symptoms. So these are aura symptoms. You can have visual, sensory, speech, and or language, motor, brainstem, and retinal symptoms. For migraine with aura, you also need to have at least three of the following six characteristics. So you need to have at least one aura symptom that spreads gradually over five minutes or more, or two or more symptoms occurring in succession, or each individual aura symptom lasts five to 60 minutes, or at least one aura symptom is unilateral, or at least one aura symptom is positive, or the aura is accompanied or followed within 60 minutes by a headache. So again, it gets very specific in terms of the diagnostic criteria, but I think what's important is to recognize for migraines without aura, you need to have five attacks to fulfill criteria plus the other stuff that are involved. And for migraines with aura, obviously you need to have the aura, but we only need to have two attacks in order for it to fulfill criteria. Okay, so a child comes in to the office and they have uh, headaches that are, you know, maybe occurring more often than usual. And it's determined based on history and physical exam that these are tension type headaches. So what are they? What are the criteria that are needed to diagnose tension type headaches? Well, in general, tension type headaches are less severe than migraines. And many patients with tension type headaches may actually go unnoticed because often they don't usually bring it up as a primary concern when they come to the doctor's office. That being said, since it doesn't usually come up because it's not often as serious as a migraine, but of course, you know, it can be quite debilitating when someone does have a tension type headache. Um, but the number of episodes that are going to be required to diagnose it are a lot more. So the criteria for infrequent episodic tension type headaches are at least 10 episodes of headache that are occurring on fewer than one day a month on average, which would basically mean less than 12 days in a year. So they need 10 episodes. Uh, each episode typically lasts between 30 minutes to seven days. So that is quite debilitating. Uh, and it usually has at least two of the following four characteristics. Tension type headaches are typically bilateral in location. The, the type of pain, the quality is usually a pressing or tightening. It's not an, a pulsating quality. Pulsating quality is typically seen in migraines with auras. In tension type headaches, it's more of a pressing or tightening. They might say it feels like a belt around their head. Uh, they can also have mild or moderate intensity, and it's not aggravated by routine physical activity such as walking or climbing stairs, which we had seen earlier in migraines. In migraines, it does affect physical activity and tension time headaches. It doesn't, it doesn't affect physical activity, meaning the physical activity doesn't make the headache worse in tension headaches. And lastly, for tension headaches, you need to have both of the following no nausea or vomiting, and no more than one of photophobia or phonophobia, which can be seen in migraines, but typically come together. Whereas in tension type headaches, you have one or the other and no nausea or vomiting. Moving on to chronic daily headaches. So these type of headaches, chronic daily headaches are typically a combination of chronic migraine and chronic tension type headaches. 
So uh, I quote from uh, this uh, source that's here in the Pediatrics and Review article, headache occurring on 15 or more days per month for more than three months, which has the features of migraine headache on at least eight days a month is considered to be chronic migraine. The criteria for chronic daily headaches are as follows. So a headache which can either be migraine-like or tension-type-like occurring on 15 or more days a month for longer than three months and then fulfilling uh, criteria B and C which follow. So criteria B states that it occurs in a patient who has had at least five attacks fulfilling criteria B through D for migraine without aura and or criteria B and C for migraine with aura. And then criteria C here says that it has to occur on at least eight days a month for more than three months. And it has to fulfill any of the following. So it has to fill either criteria C and D for migraine without aura, criteria B and C for migraine with aura, and it's believed by the patient to be migraine at the onset and relieved by a tryptin or ergo derivative. So those are going to be medications that we will talk about as treatments for migraines. But the basic idea is that for chronic daily headaches, they're not you know, one or the other. They're not migraine with or migraine without aura. You can have symptoms of migraine with aura or symptoms of migraine without aura. The key here is really the fact that it's chronic. So it's occurring on 15 or more days a month and on at least eight days a month for more than three months, you're fulfilling criteria from uh, the migraine diagnoses. We'll take a brief pause here to talk about uh, a type of headache that is not really caused by something on its own, but rather caused by us, and that's medication overuse headaches. So we're using this term medication overuse headache. Uh, sometimes it's termed rebound headache, and it's pretty much a secondary headache disorder that is not really the focus here, but it's something that's important that we really should discuss. So the diagnostic criteria for medication overuse headache are headaches that are occurring on at least 15 days a month in a patient with a pre-existing headache disorder. And it's typically caused by regular overuse for more than three months of one or more drugs that can be taken for acute or symptomatic treatment of headache. So the reason why we really talk about it here is because it can be easy to confuse medication overuse headaches with chronic daily headaches, being that it's occurring on at least 15 days a month, which as you recall, is part of the diagnostic criteria for chronic daily headaches. But the point here is that you need to look into what medications is this patient taking to try and abort their headaches and is it possible that it's the chronic use of the medication that's causing their headaches not a chronic daily headache issue or a chronic migraine issue okay and this really brings us to the last thing that we are going to talk about in terms of describing headaches and uh, what we'll focus on now are child periodic syndromes. So there are several childhood periodic syndromes uh, like abdominal migraine, cyclical, vomiting, uh, benign paroxysmal vertical, benign paroxysmal torticollis, and some others that behave in a cyclical pattern where in between episodes, the children have normal neurological exams and are completely symptom-free. And the reason why we wanna focus on this is because children with these periodic syndromes are at higher risk for developing migraine in the future. 
So we'll focus on the two, I think, maybe most common or the most uh, frequently seen. You have abdominal migraine and cyclical vomiting syndrome. To diagnose abdominal migraine, you need to have at least five attacks of abdominal pain that are fulfilling the following criteria. Pain has at least two of the following three characteristics, such as midline location, uh, peri-umbilical or poorly localized, dull or just sore quality of pain, and moderate or severe intensity. The attacks for abdominal migraine also need to have at least two of the following four associated symptoms or signs. They need to have either anorexia, nausea, vomiting, or pallor. And lastly, for the diagnostic criteria of abdominal migraine, uh, you need to have complete freedom from symptoms between attacks. So their symptoms and uh, experiences only occur during the attacks. Otherwise, it, they are completely symptom-free and completely fine. With cyclical vomiting syndrome, similarly, the criteria requires that you have at least five attacks, but now obviously it's a cyclical vomiting syndrome, so they have five attacks of intense nausea and vomiting. Uh, they also must meet other criteria, such as stereotypical in the individual patient and recurring with predictable periodicity. They also need to have all of the following criteria. Nausea and vomiting occurring at least four times in an hour. The attacks must last at least one hour and can last up to 10 days. And the attacks occur at least one week apart. And lastly, like in abdominal migraines, uh, they have complete freedom from symptoms between attacks. Okay. So we spent a great deal of time defining what headaches are, talking about uh, the history and the physical exam and how to really make the diagnosis of the different types of primary headaches. And now we really need to move into testing. What kind of testing is needed, when to get testing, and then we can talk about the treatment and prevention of these different types of headaches. When it comes to imaging the brain, if it comes to that point that we need to get imaging, there are several different modalities that we can get uh, different types of imaging. So we could get rapid MRIs, we could get a full MRI, we could get a uh, MRA, MRV, and then we can also do not imaging, but a lumbar puncture with an opening pressure. So should we get an image? Should we do lab testing? Should we do a EEG to look at the waveform of the brain and its activity? And that's the biggest question I think that parents um, ask all of the time when they come in, like, isn't there a way that we could test? Like, what is there that we can do? Should we get imaging of the brain? Maybe there's something wrong going on up there. And so this becomes a really challenging point, I think, in explaining to parents when it is appropriate to get imaging and when it is not appropriate. Because, you know, imaging, for the most part, yes, yeah, some of them can be benign, especially if it's a rapid MRI or, you know, even just a full MRI, there's no... Um, there's no radiation involved, um, but then you talk about lumbar punctures and those are more invasive, or you talk about MRAs and MRVs, which require some contrast. And so you get into um, these potentially challenging discussions with parents that are looking for a next step in terms of imaging and making a diagnosis. 
But remember that the history and the physical exam alone most often tells us what kind of headache the child has and what we will ultimately need to do in order to treat it, not necessarily needing any other additional help to make the diagnosis. If a child comes in and there is something kind of emergent going on and we need a very quick image of the head, oftentimes we'll get a CAT scan of the head. Other things that we could get, we could get a limited or a fast rapid brain MRI if it's available. And that's particularly helpful because uh, sometimes patients who need an MRI will require anesthesia so that they're not moving a lot. That's typically the case with younger children and infants. Um, but then we can also get a full-on MRI if the child is able to wait, meaning if it's not a, an emergent setting and we can wait a little while, we would then be able to get a full MRI which is the preferred type of imaging simply because it really gets a lot of the detail of the brain on the image and doesn't require any radiation at all. Okay, so, you know, I've been, uh, during my residency, I've been doing many shifts in the ER and what I've seen many times is a patient who's coming in with a concern for, you know, maybe like some sort of brain pathology or seizure-like activity. And uh, what our neurologists, our pediatric neurologists often suggest based on the clinical situation is that we get an MRI, MRA, and MRV. And the question that uh, I had initially when I've learned about these things are, what does an MRA or an MRV give us and what are we looking for in them? And then I realized that it's pretty intuitive. So an MRA is magnetic resonance uh, angiography, and the whole point of it is to look at the arteries. And the reason you would get an MRA is if you were concerned that there is some sort of arterial aneurysm that might be the cause for uh, whatever is happening with the child. Similarly, if I'm looking for uh, some other type of vascular pathology that's occurring in the veins, I can get an MRV, magnetic resonance venography, which would be looking at uh, the veins for a venous sinus thrombosis or a venous sinus stenosis, which can be seen in pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. And lastly, uh, who deserves a lumbar puncture and opening pressure. So these are patients who are coming in with an acute isolated headache or they have chronic progressive headaches. And you want to get an LP and a pressure, but before you do that, you really want to get neuroimaging. And the reason for it is because if there is something going on in the brain and you then go ahead and do an LP, uh, what you could potentially cause is herniation of the brain. But for establishing increased intracranial pressure, there is no better test than getting an LP with an opening pressure. And uh, what you do with the CSF afterwards is analyze with the goal of evaluating for infection, inflammation, and hemorrhage that can be the explanation for the patient's acute isolated headache or chronic progressive headache. Let's move on to discussing treatment of headaches and migraines in children. And the biggest focus right now, before we talk about any medications, is going to be on lifestyle modifications, as we will see with so many childhood illnesses and disorders. Because for the most part, children are pretty robust. And if we just change their lifestyle, something that they're doing that may potentially be causing their symptoms or illness, uh, we can really have a great impact on, on 
overall making them feel better, but also preventing the need for medication and additional treatment. So lifestyle modifications that we could work on are sleep pattern, sleep hygiene, which involves um, not just the amount of sleep and when the child goes to sleep, but how they go to sleep, their screen time use. Also screening for sleep apnea, uh, checking in on their hydration status, checking in on the number of urines that they're having a day, which involves recognizing their hydration status, looking at their diet and their exercise habits, asking how much caffeine they're drinking and how much exercise that they're able to get, like regular cardiovascular exercise, looking at their stress level, their anxiety level, their depression, and then of course, screening them for medication overuse as a possible explanation for their headaches. And sometimes the most important treatment you can give to a patient with headaches is having them complete a headache log or a calendar to help assess their headache burden and identify triggers that can be avoided in the future. What if lifestyle modifications don't work and this child truly needs some medication? So there are different types of medication that we could give. We could give abortive or we could give preventive. So we'll talk about both of these now. For abortive therapy of migraines and headaches, uh, key things are rest and hydration, as we've already discussed, but they go hand in hand here now with medication. And we'll start with over-the-counter medications such as NSAIDs or acetaminophen. Now, the key with the over-the-counter meds is that they should be taken as soon as the patient feels the headache coming on. If we're talking about a patient who has migraine with aura, they should start taking their medication as soon as the aura is detected. But you need to be careful when taking these over-the-counter medications because you don't want to use them chronically where they can then cause medication overuse headaches. So what do we mean by overuse? We mean 10 to 15 days a month of using over-the-counter medications. And the combination of over-the-counter medications with things like acetaminophen, aspirin, caffeine, or balbital put patients at a higher risk for causing these medication overuse headaches. And then it becomes really difficult to treat because you need a washout period where they're not getting any of these medications, which can be even more debilitating uh, than before. Ah, the migraine cocktail approach. It's cocktail hour. So when it comes to treating uh, the acute headache, trying to abort a headache or a migraine, there is something called the migraine cocktail. And this migraine cocktail will be different whether you're treating someone at home or you're treating them in the emergency room. And the key difference is really just going to be the form of administration. At home, obviously, it's all going to be oral. In the emergency room, if it's severe enough that it requires them to be there, then we're going to give them something intravenously. For a child with migraine that is going to be treated at home, the migraine cocktail typically includes an NSAID, an antiemetic agent, oral fluids, and sometimes an antihistamine can be tagged onto that as well. Some people add on a little bit of coffee if their headache is occurring in the morning. And if all of this is ineffective, then sometimes a triptan can also be added to the migraine cocktail. More specifically, triptans are useful for abortive therapy, especially in the older children and adolescents uh, population. Although other than these two types of triptans, risotriptan and almotriptan, none of the other triptans are FDA approved for migraines in children and adolescents. 
Interestingly, uh, in studies, nasal sumatriptan and nasal zolmatriptan have shown to have the best efficacy data in pediatrics. Although most providers um, initiate treatment with an oral triptan. And then as an additional side point, in addition to the option of nasal administration with sumatriptan and zolmatriptan, rizatriptan and zolmatriptan are also available in disintegrating oral tablets, which can uh, give easier administration to younger children. So what happens if this is not working and the headaches persist? Well, the child needs to then come to the emergency room. And when they do so, we're gonna give them the intravenous migraine cocktail, uh, which includes a pain medication such as IV ketorolac, or better known as Toradol. Uh, we'll give them an anti-nausea medication, we'll give IV fluids, and sometimes we'll give an antihistamine as well. And then similarly to the home migraine cocktail, if those four things are ineffective, other things can be tried. We can use IV magnesium, IV valproic acid, IV methylprednisolone, and IV dihydroergotamine. There are other medications that can be considered. Um, typically, they're not considered unless everything else is not working and basically the headache is refractory to those treatments. But I don't want to spend any time really walking through a list of what other medications can be used. Uh, you can really just go ahead and find this Pediatrics and Review article and read up on those medications as well. What I do want to focus on right now is preventive therapy. And the reason for this is because, as we've mentioned many times over, the headache burden on a child can lead to feelings of hopelessness and depression can be so debilitating, affecting so many aspects of their lives and affecting their families' lives and the lives of their friends and everyone around them. And so this debilitating nature requires that we have something that we can give these children to prevent their headaches from coming on and allow them to live regular normal lives. So there are four main classes of medication that are used for preventive therapy. We have antihistamines, antiepileptics, antidepressants or anxiolytics, and antihypertensive medication. Now, despite trials not really showing great outcomes, specifically the CHAMP trial, like the Childhood and Adolescent Migraine Prevention Trial, um, where we compared placebo to some of these medications, despite the results of this trial, which didn't really give us um, much help, uh, topiramate and amitriptyline are still commonly used as first-line preventive choices, as is ciproheptidine. Which to start really depends on the specific needs and comorbidities of the patient. And so I don't want to go over all of them, but I'll just give a few examples. So for a patient with migraine and obesity, they might benefit from topiramate because it has possible weight loss. Whereas a patient who, on the other hand, has uncontrolled asthma, well, you don't want to give that patient beta blockers because we know that it can worsen asthma. So you just need to be cognizant of what kinds of needs and comorbidities the patient has when deciding which medication to start for prevention. And then we have other types of therapies called complementary therapies. And these are things that uh, go hand in hand with the rest of our headache treatment that we're already giving and are typically very helpful in patients with chronic daily headache. So these complementary therapies include vitamin supplementation, herbals, 
Uh, you can get uh, psychological therapy with biofeedback, CBT, relaxation therapy, physical therapy, acupuncture, massage, and cranial sacral therapy, all of which can be important tools to help treat migraine and chronic headaches. Just as an example, riboflavin, magnesium oxide, and melatonin are common choices from this class of complementary preventative agents. And sometimes they're even started before daily preventative medication is used in a way to prevent the need or see if we can avoid the need of taking any medication at all. And that's really it in a nutshell for the treatments and prevention of headache. The last thing, absolute last thing we're going to talk about are procedural interventions. When medication doesn't work, what can we do? And some of these procedures include nerve blocks like occipital nerve blocks, phenopalatine nerve blocks, trigeminal nerve blocks. We can also use botulinum toxin, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and even migraine surgery. However, there's limited experience with these procedural interventions in children and adolescents, and so many really consider these experimental and don't really happen on a day-to-day basis. Well, that pretty much wraps up our talk on headache in children. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital, and I want to thank you for joining me in today on this episode of Headache in Children based on the Pediatrics and Review article published in April of 2020. Today was a little bit of a longer episode, but I really feel like we delved into all of the things that we need to understand about headaches in children, how debilitating they can be, what the different types of primary and secondary headaches are, how to diagnose them based on history and physical exam alone, when to get testing and further testing involved like imaging, and how to treat it with abortive therapy, preventive therapy, and complementary therapy.